you know, I'm thinking about this, and you don't really have to send the mullet question in. It was the 80s, and mullets were cool. All the cool kids had mullets. I had very straight hair, so I was like not one of those like curly mullets. I was like a straight. My wife didn't think it was that badly. She didn't say it was when we met. So ask her, why did she like a dude with a mullet? I don't know. Anyway, so I would like to say welcome to you if you're live streaming from any place around the world to the United States, like Colorado and Texas and Utah and New Mexico, to places as far-reaching, as I said last week, as like Lompoc and Napomo and AG and Vandenberg Air Force Base and Santa Maria and Orkut. If you would like to, you can grab an app that is called Uversion. Once you download Uversion, you're just going to type in Bible on your phone. That's how you'll see it. When you open Uversion, you're going to click on More and then Events in Uversion, and you type in the zip code 93455, and that will bring us up. And you are going to get the sermon notes from today. You're going to get the announcements that Sarah gave you with links to the Zoom call. Uh, you're going to get the verses we're going through today, all that kind of good stuff that's in there. Uh, My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you would like to, wherever you are, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word or just stay on your couch, whatever. But this is Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and move us to a place where we understand what you are calling us to in our greater culture. The ways that we can talk about you as king and lord of our lives, but also live as citizens of the country that we are in, in ways that honor who you are. Teach us to trust you and the words that you say to us, because you are good. Amen. All right, have a seat if you're standing, or just open your eyes if you're still sitting on the couch. Uh, we are 16 weeks into our trek through the second part of the book of Acts. We are looking more closely at the Apostle Paul as he goes around this Mediterranean world to spread the good news of the gospel of God rescuing us in the person of Jesus. Now, last week we looked at what happened to Paul in this place called Philippi. Philippi is a good and a bad place for Paul. In Philippi, God is doing a brand new work of the gospel. Paul gets to be part of that. And there are people coming to know who Jesus is. But there's also a bad part of this where Paul goes and he casts an evil spirit out of this young teenage slave girl. I mean, that was a good thing. But the bad part is her owners went nuts and they found a way to have Paul beaten and thrown into jail. Not just Paul, but also his traveling companions. If you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 16. Yes, I know it's backtracking. We're going to start there. Don't worry, we will get to 17. But what I wanted to do is kind of contextualize what's taking place in the scriptures today and talk about government and the gospel and what that looks like for all of us. Because there are questions that come up, especially right now under COVID-19, staying in your home, social distancing, what does that look like? Do we, do we go with what the government says? And there are ways to honor what God calls us to. And so I think we can look at some of those things in the scriptures today. Now, what happens in Acts 16, after Paul is beaten and thrown in jail, the very next morning, after the unfair treatment, the magistrates in Philippi send the jailer to let Paul go. Acts 16, verses, uh, verses 37, he says this, But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. 
Now, I told you last week, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world of Paul's time. Like a year before this, the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews, which included the Christians, from Rome for a period of 12 years. And the magistrates that threw Paul in jail would have never thought that Paul or Silas could have been Roman citizens. Uh, Paul and Silas may have even tried to claim they were, but no one was going to listen to them. Acts 16, verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So why do they react this way? What's actually going on here? Well, in terms of government and the gospel, I want to give you a little bit of history and background on what's taking place. Years before this event with Paul, way back like 70 BC, there's a Roman aristocrat, and his name is Varus. could be Varus, but hey, winter is coming, so we're going to say Varus. At that time, uh, Romans would map out who's going to hold all the public offices, who's going to have all the power, so so unlike today. And so they they were all supposed to get someone they agreed to to go be what's called the council, the head civic position in Rome. One of them would get that, and they would hold that position for a year. And after a year, they would advocate, advocate that, and they'd become a Proconsul, someone who was underneath the council. This is all really a way to make money and, and keep power because after you retired from the councilship, you would move off to some region and you would then rule over it. A lot of the places that we've looked at throughout the book of Acts had these proconsuls ruling over them. Places like Judea and Syria and Cilicia and Asia and Galatia and Achaia and all over the places in Macedonia where Paul is now. So Varus becomes this council, this praetor protestas, and then after it's over, he retires to Sicily to get rich. And he shows up to Sicily and starts collecting exorbitant taxes. He seizes anything his eye falls on and that he wants, like artwork. He had control of the military. So if anybody said, no, you can't take my stuff, he'd send the military in. You might be sold up as a slave or silenced and killed. Shiploads of goods were sent back to his home in Rome. Now, rumors started to leak out that Varus just wasn't doing this to all these other nationalities. He was doing it also to Roman citizens. And that's a big no-no. Like in Rome, you could do whatever you wanted to anybody else, but you can't do that to Roman citizens. And this got back to a barrister at the time named Cicero. Cicero comes, he checks out the claims, and he is appalled at what Varus is doing. And after a lot of squirming, Varus is brought back to trial in 70 B.C., Varus had bribed a whole lot of people, and he probably would have gotten off, except that he had crucified a man who claimed to be a Roman citizen. There was a guy who had some stuff that Varus wanted, and he said no. So Varus had this guy beaten, and the guy still said no. And so Varus had him crucified. The whole time, the guy is crying out, you can't do this to me. I am a Roman citizen. And Romans would not let that stand. And so Varus gets convicted, he runs off and hides in exile, but he's eventually caught and killed. Uh, By a guy named Mark Antony, if if you really care, uh, he actually, people say he wanted Varus' artwork, that's why he really went after him. But that cry, I am a Roman citizen, became a cautionary tale for anybody who was involved in government, especially magistrates. Do not get too vicious, because you can do whatever you want to other nations, but Romans, will they have rights. If anything got back to Rome, where a Roman citizen was beaten and was tossed in jail without any sort of due process or reason, there would literally be hell to pay. And it's why the magistrates become concerned, and they're very afraid at this moment, when they hear 
Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And Paul, it's kind of funny, he's going to milk this for all that it's worth. He's gracious, but he still milks it. Like he makes them come and escort them out and apologize. I don't think Paul's being vindictive. I think Paul here is protecting that church in Philippi. Because with these magistrates, they're going to think twice before going after this church after this. So they ask Paul to leave, and Paul will leave. But he does it slowly, and he talks to everybody he knew before he left saying goodbye. Paul is a guy you'll see through Acts. He got hit with the downside of Roman rule a lot, but he also could use the upside at times. And what I want to do is deal with this idea throughout the passage of how Paul essentially appeals to Roman rule while he is consistently saying that he serves another king. So how do we, as people who live in America, in our world as U.S. citizens, are still U.S. citizens, but we worship and serve Jesus as our rightful ruler? Now, this is going to come up for Paul in the next section, because Paul's going to be accused of saying that he serves another king, which, it's funny, because he totally is. So Acts 17, starting in verse 1, says this, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so that's over a three-week period, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah, God sent Redeemer. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, as a side note, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but when the gospel of Jesus Christ is fully preached, what you see is strong, gifted women and also people of other ethnicities, they begin to flourish. They're drawn to it. And it's really sad that the narrative outside of real faith in Jesus, where some people look into it, they say, oh, Christianity, it's repressive. And some churches really have reinforced that. But nothing and no movement has done more for the welfare, the growth, and the flourishing of women and other ethnicities and culture than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Now, some people will say, well, what about feminism, right? Well, I, I think feminism, when it first started in its early form, was actually driven by gospel principles. It served the purpose of Christians being the Imago Dei, the image of God, men and women created equal and yet distinct. And I'm not talking about some of the things that feminism does today, but in its roots, it's this idea of equality. And these women and these foreigners of these different ethnicities, they were intelligent and gifted. And the text keeps coming back to tell us that not just women, but other ethnicities in high standing are coming to believe and trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is making a point that these are not weak people. They are bold, they are brilliant, and with gladness there is submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say anywhere in the world where people are not flourishing and people are being repressed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not being fully preached. So, verse 5 then says this, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, and this would be referring to men in the marketplace, most likely non-Jews, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, before the government authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And this goes back to what we talked about last week and the disturbance in these cities. And when they had taken money as security 
from them, from Jason, like this is bail money, and the rest, they let them go. What you see here is that now, Paul has Gentiles and Jews both gunning for him. The Jews are going after Paul for blasphemy, but in the Roman course, this will turn to a place of sedition. You're speaking of another king, and so now the Romans go after him as well. But here at this point, for once, they can't find Paul. Why? Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue again. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And when it says more noble, that doesn't mean better than or something like that. The word there for noble in this context, it means they weren't slaves to their preconceived ideas, that they were more generous with looking at the scriptures and listening to the words that Paul was saying. And they don't just take Paul's word for it. They open the scriptures rather than letting their emotions override the truth. Verse 12, many of them, therefore, believed. Why? Because they looked at the scriptures. With not a few Greek women of high standing, there it is again, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, you know, those less noble, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. It's like they got nothing better to do. I don't know. Agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And really because they're probably more just after Paul. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, that's the text I want to kind of look at today in this. And I think when, when Paul runs from Thessalonica, you, you can see it really bothers him to leave these people behind because he wants to spend more time with him. Like just a couple weeks after he leaves them, Paul will write the book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is that work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So in context of gospel and government, I want to walk through these things to help you see what's happening. In Thessalonica, Paul goes in and he does what he normally does. He goes to the Jewish synagogue and he speaks about faith in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the long-awaited Redeemer. Now here there's a larger Jewish population because they actually can have a synagogue. So there's a group of men gathering together in these places of prayer. Now, it's also here in this culture that Paul will start to preach just a little bit differently to them. This is what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, when Paul originally goes into synagogues, when you see this in Acts 13, 14, 15, he goes in and he talks about how Jesus fulfilled all of God's promises. He is the great redeemer. And you see Paul probably does this here too, but he also starts now talking about Jesus as the suffering Savior. And it could be that believers in Thessalonica were experiencing hardships. It could be how Paul is relating to all of his hardships. And he probably most likely speaks this way because people are questioning whether he is really sent by God. Because if you're sent by God and God is blessing you, surely you wouldn't have all of this trouble. 
And in the same way, it's really even bigger with their questions because their questions would be like, well, if Jesus really is God's Messiah, if Jesus is God's Redeemer and God sent Jesus into the world, well, God wouldn't, shouldn't, couldn't allow such a thing as death, crucifixion, to happen to his promised Redeemer. How could God ever be served by people who love him enduring any hardship whatsoever? And these are questions that people ask today, especially with us stuck in our homes and things like that. Now, Paul is aware of all of those questions, so what he does is he takes them off of the board right at the start. He begins teaching them the scriptures, probably like Isaiah 53, that you know, by his wounds we are healed, that God's Redeemer is going to be crucified and cut off. Genesis 22, where Abraham and Isaac are going to offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was going to be Isaac, and God provides a ram instead of Isaac. He probably talks about how Israel starts off in slavery in Egypt, and God leads them out. But then they go, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter the promised land. Paul probably talks about the city of Jerusalem, their great city, which was destroyed. And then God's people get taken off into Babylon, into captivity. But they will be brought back again, and their city is rebuilt, and they start rebuilding their temple again, that the exile wasn't final, even though they probably all thought it was. And there's all of these themes that were about suffering and vindication and disaster and reversal and death and resurrection. I think Paul takes all of that now and said, if that is the story and all the messianic prophecies fit into that story, then it's only logical that Jesus, crucified by the Roman government, was really risen and he really is the Christ. A lot of the reasons why a lot of Jewish people did not want to believe is they didn't want to understand the story that God's people can actually suffer. What they wanted to think is is that God blesses us and we're just the blessed people in the world. But God is always telling his people, I'm blessing you to go out and be a blessing. Today, this is still true. People don't want to believe in God when they go through hardships in their life. But in these places, some were persuaded. And we get told that Jews and Gentiles both believed. Now, those that didn't believe were a lot like how Paul started his journey. Paul is zealous for God, and he thought God's honor is being diminished. And so, Paul wants to go out and stop this movement called Christianity. And the Jews are the same thing. No one is like, how would God come in the flesh and die for his people and resurrect? That just wouldn't happen. It sounds so ridiculous. And it still sounds ridiculous to a lot of people today. Now, when it says here that the Jews were jealous, it could mean that they were jealous because people were listening to Paul. But much more likely, it's that they were jealous for God. It's a righteous indignation. In their mind, Paul is speaking blasphemy about God, the law of Moses, that especially even Greeks and Gentiles were now welcomed into the family of God just as much as a Jewish person. And they, in their minds, probably had good motives, like many times we do when we sometimes do something stupid, and they start to cause a disturbance. And this is so true. At Element, we have had the people who have had the best intentions cause many times such division here, thinking they're always doing the right thing. There are really good churches who have gone through church splits, both sides thinking that they are doing the right thing in the midst of it. They have the best intentions in their heart. Do you know when Jesus was crucified, those people who crucified him thought they had the best intentions of God at heart. They thought they were honoring God by killing Jesus. 
And maybe that should give us some pause when we are bringing about division. What is interesting is that the Jews who are against Paul don't even see the irony when they go into the marketplace and get some non-Jews to go and start a riot to try and get Paul. They go to this guy of a house named Jason. And don't worry if you haven't heard about Jason. He's new in the text. But this is really how you know Luke's story is real. Because Luke is writing these things and he's assuming these people know who this guy is. Jason is a guy who probably believed over those three weeks that Paul is sharing in that synagogue. And he opens up his home and says, why don't we meet here and talk about things here? It's a really cool thing. Jason and some other brand new Christians are going to bear the brunt of that mob's attack with the government, with those magistrates. They most likely weren't Roman citizens like Paul and Silas. And after Paul is gone, Paul worries about these trials that they're going to go through at the hands of the government and these people. Again, Paul will write this just a couple weeks after this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It's not always meant to be easy. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass. And as you, just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And again, I think this is why Paul starts speaking in all these places about Jesus being the suffering redeemer, the suffering Messiah. He knew that there were people and places in the empire that most likely would not want to listen to God's people. They would not want to hear what they had to say, and they would take them probably to the government authorities when they say Jesus is Lord and want to get them arrested or crucified themselves. The mob, what they say when they go to Jason's house, it lets you know that Christianity is actually spreading. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. One of our elders, Mike Harmon, always says, it's not they're turning the world upside down. They're turning it right side up again. That, that's what they're doing here. And this is really true because everybody knew the story at this point. It's like Christianity, it really seems to be spreading. It's not just some new religious experience like how our culture speaks about it. It's the announcing to the world that our creator is setting everything right again in the person of Jesus. This is what they say. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. There probably was a lot of those decrees, but the big one is saying that there is another king Jesus. And you know what? That's exactly right. That's what they are saying. But it's not another king. It is the only true king. It's actually a true accusation. I mean, think about this. Because here, they really are getting the message. These people who don't believe, they get it. They're saying, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? What well, means Caesar isn't Lord? The fundamental decree of the Romans that the government required people to say was, Caesar is Lord. In Rome, you could be any religion you wanted to. The government was cool with that, as long as you also worship Caesar as Lord. And once a year, you would go into the temple of Caesar, and you would burn incense to his name, because he's the embodiment of Rome, the glory of Rome. Going against him is committing treason. And the problem is, Christians wouldn't worship Caesar. Only Jews got an exemption. This goes back to the Hasmodians and all kind of history in that, but just the Jews started eventually then saying that, no, those Christians, they're not really Jews. And so then the Roman government takes a deeper look and find all these people who call themselves Christians, not worshiping all these different gods, but Jesus. 
and they could really care less in the end about Caesar. It's an offense. It's a declaration of war against that government. Who are these petty, small people with their civic structures poking Rome in the eyeball? And really, it's why widespread persecution against Christians starts to break out in the Roman Empire. It becomes inevitable. And it could be where society where we live goes one day. Because it's going to come to a place where it says, how dare any Christian have a view of the world that doesn't conform to what our society says is acceptable? I think it's coming. But Christianity, what it does is it takes a step further than this, even in that culture, and it boldly proclaims and doesn't stop that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when you proclaim that, it brings hardships. So how does Paul remain a loyal Roman citizen, claiming the protections and rights afforded to him as a Roman citizen, yet also proclaiming Jesus as another king? And I don't have all the answers for you this morning, but I think it's a good thing I can talk through a couple maybe points of this and help you to start to ask some good questions in it, especially in the midst of our culture. The first one is this. N.T. Wright talks about looking at this proclamation in the ancient world really more as it comes down to of what type of king do we see Jesus being? What type of king is he? Now, at his trial, Pilate, the Roman government authority, will ask Jesus if he is a king. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, people love this verse. We make bumper stickers that say, Not of this world, and we stick them on our cars. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But really, a proper rendition of what Jesus is saying in this cultural context would be, Not from this world. It's clear that the implication is that it's not derived from this world. It's elsewhere, but it really is for this world. Many times when we say things like, not of this world, it's like, I'm going to be taken out of here and this world's going to burn. Woohoo! we get to get out of here. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is for this world. My followers are to live for it in this world. So the accusation against Jesus and his followers is really true, but it's also a bit misleading because Jesus doesn't call his followers to take over the world like a misguided pinky in the brain. We're going to do tomorrow night brain. We're going to take over the world. Not like that at all. He calls us to lead the world to the foot of the cross and surrender of all of our lives. His kingdom comes as hearts and lives change and heaven starts to invade our lives and the world even when we live in the systems that we do today. Now, the second thing you've got to see is how Paul talks about the government as well. In Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul will say this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, these verses have been taken out of context throughout ages. So let me just walk through this a bit. When Paul talks about this, he is talking about roles versus people and how that practically works out in the world. Paul is giving general principles about government, not writing about specific rulers. His methods is to show how that you can come in and honor what God calls us to in the world. The principle is this, be subject to the governing authorities, which you will see Paul do throughout the book of Acts. But the methods of how we honor Jesus in that can be a little bit different. Like we do not subject ourselves to specific people. We don't pay taxes to specific people. We submit to the office. And when a new person is in office, we submit to that person, not the old one. And once a person is out of office, we don't owe the old person any allegiance or taxes or anything like that. 
The authorities that Paul writes about are roles. They're not specific people. So for us in America, every few years, you know, we have a presidential election. And depending on how that election goes, some people are really excited about it and some people are really irritated about it. But we're called to be a people who still show respect to the office, whether we agree with policies or not. See, my understanding as I read through the scriptures is that civil authorities are worthy of respect because of their office. Now, you can look at this a couple different ways, right? Some people love our president. Some people hate our president. Uh, In California, some people love our governor. Some people hate our governor. Like, you know, hashtag not my president, hashtag not my governor, whatever. In the midst of that, we're still supposed to respect what that role in that place is, whether you care for that person or not. And so it goes for both sides. And I don't mind to turn everybody off at this point, since I just probably offended everybody on both sides of the political aisle, but it's about respecting what that position actually is. Now, on the other side of that, you have to also understand, subject to does not also mean obey. And so honor, in the sense of when Paul talks about it, is do those who deserve it, who are honorable in their integrity and their morals and and the way that they serve. And so that idea, subject to, does not mean obey. Paul says we should be subject to our government not because we fear punishment if we break the law, but because we love God. And God knows our hearts. And God knows what he is doing in the world. And there will be times when things happen that we don't do. We don't follow because it dishonors who God is and who he calls us to. But when things aren't evil and wrong, it's supposed to be more than outward compliance. It goes to our hearts and our souls. Like, think about this. Think about filling out our taxes. When you're honest, you don't fear an audit. And if you do get audited, well, you've got nothing really to hide. We have a clean conscience before God because when we fill out our taxes, God's already seen them before we ever send them in. John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans 13, says that throughout the scriptures, God uses wicked rulers as his scourge to punish the sins of the people. And that would mean his people as well. In other words, what Calvin says is many times as a people, we get the rulers that we deserve. So think about that next time you want to complain about the government a little bit. See, the idea, when governments function the way they're supposed to, they should protect law-abiding citizens. They should punish the lawbreakers. But that's not always the case because they become corrupt. But the first question we ask is, is not pointing the finger at them. The question needs to be, what type of citizens are we as children of God? Bob Defendah, he, he wrote this once. He said, Christians comply with the law. We slow down as we pass a police car with its radar speed detection equipment. We drive carefully and lawfully when the patrol car is following us, but as soon as we are sure it's safe, we drive normally and illegally. Like, we comply, but we don't cooperate. Paul is saying, if something's not evil, you cooperate. You love them. And again, he's clear, as long as it doesn't violate what God calls us to. Paul, you'll see in Acts, he will follow the Roman law until it dishonors God. And then he stands for what God called him to. And he's willing to take what the government doled out as a result of that. Like, Paul would not say, Caesar is Lord. Paul will not stop talking about the gospel. Paul will talk about the difference between the peace that Jesus brings versus the peace that the Roman Empire said they were bringing at the end of a sword. See, the good news for us as believers in Jesus is the type of king that Jesus is. He is a rescuer. He is our savior. And when he comes to us where we are in the systems that we are, he saves us, and yet then he leaves us in our countries as his ambassadors to speak the life-giving grace of who he is in the midst of our cultures of decay. God will take us and send us as his ambassadors to the world to speak the truth of who Jesus is. And so I think that we need to ask ourselves a couple questions this morning. 
we have to ask, what type of king do we think that Jesus is? Is he the kind of king that's just going to grab us and take us out of here? Or is he the type of king that rescues and saves and then sends us back into the world as his ambassadors? And then what, what type of people are we going to be as we live in the systems and the governmental places that we do? How are we going to be a people that speak about the good news of Jesus? How we're going to be those people is we're going to understand the gospel in everything. We're going to be a people who come to the place where we understand God's rescue of us in the midst of hardship, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of whatever it is and wherever we are. We're going to understand how God has stepped in and rescued us first. And then understand that rescue, then we're going to interact with our governmental systems as they are. And we may disagree at times, and there may be things that we really don't like, but we will do it in a way that is honorable as it honors God. That's the point, that we live out as his ambassadors in this world because he has first saved us. And I know it's a difficult time right now in the world that we're in. I feel like I've washed my hands so many times that I shouldn't have any skin left. It's, it's, it's driving me nuts not to be able to go out. Uh, somebody came to do a work, uh, job at my house just the other day, and I walked up. I'm all, hi! They go, and I'm all, oh, oh, oops, sorry, because I forget all it's, There's all these crazy things, but how are we going to be a people? who honor God in the midst of exactly where we are, in the places that we are, that honor some things the government has called us to, as long as it doesn't dishonor who God is. It means that we be a people who start in the place of the understanding of the gospel and God's rescue of us. That's where we start. The band's going to come up. And I'm going to remind you that every week, the way that we help you guys to do this is we take you to a place of communion. Now, again, we, you, we can't do that together, but you can do it at home if you like. Communion is a place where we break like a cracker that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us to rescue and save us, that the government doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. And we would take that cracker and we would dip it in the wine or the grape juice when you're here, and that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood of Jesus is what rescues and saves and washes away our sin. Our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus, our great rescuer, our great redeemer. But he has sent us to be his ambassadors in the world. And it's not always easy, and I don't have all the answers to all the questions of what that really even looks like as we live out through the things that we do in our country. But I will tell you, if we are not first focused upon God's great rescue of us, we are never going to be able to live as ambassadors in the world. So let's be a people who start to speak about it and understand that our Savior suffered and died and rose from the grave. And we may be in places where we suffer, but our God has promised us new life and resurrection in who he is. So let's trust him in the midst of that. If you would like prayer, uh, again, maybe as, as Sarah said earlier in the announcements, maybe you're in a place today and you are all alone and you're, and you're feeling isolated, or maybe you're not alone and you have a bunch of little kids making you go crazy and you just want someone to pray with you. You know, log in tonight to that Zoom call. Uh, you can send an email to connectedourelement.org and we'll pray for you there. Uh, you can even put it in the comments on the side. If you're watching on a computer, the YouTube stream, you can put it comments on the side. People will pray for you right there. I mean, our God is a good God. As ambassadors in the world, we come around one another and worship him together and draw one another back to who he is because he is good. I'd invite you guys this morning to also maybe eat a meal with one another in your homes. 
that you would be able to talk through some of the stuff we've talked about today, especially government and the gospel. If you do get that U version, there are going to be some questions in there that are going to be able to reflect on some of the things we talked about today that will kind of go back and work through that. And it's okay if you disagree with some people who are around you and how that works out. That's fun. We're called to iron sharpen iron. We're going to sharpen one another. But in the end, we must be a people who always come to the understanding of God's great rescue of us, of what the gospel is. So we are a people who will worship him and all that we do, and the world will see that, because that's how the world changes. God's rescue, we as his ambassadors, living out in ways that honor him even through hardships and trials. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to live out as your ambassadors in this world. Father, whether we go through things like Paul did at times where it seems like mob after mob after mob is just chasing him down and wanting him to stop talking about you. And yet he didn't stop talking about you. And he looks at the culture where he is and speaks in a way that they would understand who you are. You know, to the Jewish people in Asia Minor, Paul is speaking about the beauty of how you came and fulfilled all the promises you've ever made in the person of Christ. And yet here in these places, he starts talking about Jesus as our great suffering Savior because they are true. You are true to your promises. And yet, as we read and look throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures, we constantly see that you allow your people to go through hardships as you grow them to understand you better and to trust you more. And so I ask that you would teach us to understand the great blessings that we have received. And so we would in turn be a blessing to the world around us, that we would speak those things out. That we would truly learn to be your ambassadors wherever we are because we understand your rescue of us first and foremost. That you are God of the promise who has rescued and saved us. Have us live as your children in this world, honoring you. And we ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.